Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original, lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. Ah, yes, springtime, when the prevailing question among some backyard tomato growers is, should I prune off those first tomato flowers I see to get more tomatoes later on? The answer is either no, it depends, or perhaps. Master gardener Gail Pothauer will tell us why that answer is an emphatic, it depends. I still say no. Also, we talk with garden book author Robert Couric. His latest is Sustainable Food Gardens, Myths and Solutions. He has a lot of great common sense advice for maximizing your backyard food production. We're podcasting from Barking Dog Studios here in the beautiful Abutilon jungle in suburban purgatory. It's the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. Brought to you today by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. And we'll do it all in just a bit over 30 minutes. Let's go. We like to answer your garden questions here on the Garden Basics podcast. We are at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center in Sacramento County, talking with master gardener and vegetable expert Gail Pothauer. And Gail, we've got some vegetable questions that are just right up your alley. Okay. And I can always know when it's spring when these questions come in. And George writes in to Fred at FarmerFred.com. George writes in and asks, does picking off the immature flowers encourage or discourage future crop production of tomatoes? The tomato plants are six inches tall. We get this question every spring. (laughs) People read somewhere, usually it's online, that picking off the early flowers on a tomato plant will give you more tomatoes later on. True or false? It depends. If you're growing a determinate tomato and you start picking off the flowers, you're going to be reducing your yield because determinate tomato varieties only have a certain number of flowers that they produce. It depends. I personally would pick off flowers on a small plant like that, but once they're transplanted in the garden, I would not pick off flowers at all. Indeterminate varieties are going to grow until frost kills them or disease kills them, and so you're going to have a plethora of flowers and fruit anyway. So I don't think there's any reason to pick them off. If the plant is small, like you started it from seed and it's now in a four-inch pot, to encourage the root system to really grow and it has flowers on it, I would take them off. But generally, a plant that small won't have flowers yet. You know, they're going to have to be a little bit taller before they'd start producing, getting to the flower protection stage. For those who don't know, explain the difference between a determinate tomato and an indeterminate tomato. Determinate tomatoes typically are your paste tomatoes, ones you'd cook with. Um, They are commercial varieties that they grow out in agricultural. They want to be able to harvest them at one time. So determinate plants grow to a certain size. They're generally shorter, three to five feet. They will set their flowers typically at one time or kind of in the same, same time period. Set fruit and then that's it. 
they harvest all at once. So they're good if you want to can, get a lot of tomatoes at one time. Out in the, the fields, they want to be able to come through and harvest the whole plant at one time. So they are programmed genetically to grow to a certain size, produce flowers, fruit, stop. Some of them would continue to grow a little bit, you know, continue to produce a little more. Indeterminate plants are ones that are seven, eight feet tall that will flower and produce all season until frost or disease kills them. So determinate plants may or may not need to have some support when you grow them. Depends on the variety. We typically grow them in some kind of a cage. We don't want them on the ground. Indeterminates absolutely need to have some structure because they're going to be six, eight, ten feet tall, need a big sturdy cage or a stake or something to grow them. And cages, I, I love using cages of getting a, a sheet of what's called concrete reinforcement wire, six inch mesh wire, and the sheets are usually four feet by five feet. You can bend that into a nice tall cylinder and secure it with zip ties and you have yourself a tomato cage that'll last for years. Absolutely. I'm still using tomato cages that were built after my house was built in 1974, they were left over from the construction project. So I'm still using those cages and what, that's 40 some odd years. <laughs> so they'll last a long time. They will rest, but yeah, they last forever. Now I have heard and seen on the internet people who talk about pruning the flowers off tomatoes for staking purposes if they're tying it to a single stake. But everything I've read about that seems to imply that way you'll get earlier tomatoes, not necessarily more tomatoes. And you look at the research from places like Cornell University, and they just say, well, if you prune off the flowers, you're going to have fewer tomatoes. Right. Typically, what I have read on the Internet about pruning tomato plants is more of pruning the foliage. If you're growing on a stake or something like that, you don't want to have this huge, robust, indeterminate plant that would take over your yard on a single stake. And so you start pruning some of the branches. We have not done that out here. We prefer to grow them in a tomato cage and let them just grow rampant. Um, the only time we do any pruning of foliage is anything that's touching the ground. So we'll prune off any leaves or branches that are down low touching the ground. And if we have a variety that is super dense and you can hardly get inside to get the fruit, we might do a little bit of pruning that way. And then at the end of the season, well, toward August or so, we'll start pruning the tops of the plants. We don't want it to set more fruit. It's now August, pushing into September. We want all the energy going into ripening the fruit that's already on there. So we'll give them a haircut along the top because our plants won't stay in past much September, early October anyway. Well, yeah, and that's, again, that's pruning off uh, stems uh, in order to uh, halt production. The other thing about removing foliage, too, you don't want your tomatoes exposed to the full sun, especially here in California, uh, especially the south-facing and west-facing sides of the tomato. They can take a beating if there's no foliage to protect them. That's absolutely correct. A lot of the information that I find on the Internet, even if it's from university sites, are on the East Coast where they don't have the intense sun that we have. So in the Sacramento area, because our our summer afternoon sun is so intense and we have a lot of heat, we need as much foliage as we can to protect the fruit. A lot of the fruit will be outside the cages, so it's good to have the extra foliage. I even provide shade cloth occasionally. So George, there you go. Don't prune off those flowers. Put those shears away. Gail Potha, our Sacramento County Master Gardener. We're here at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center where Harvest Day is the first Saturday in August. 
Come on out here if you're in Northern California. It is one of the greatest garden events uh, in Northern California for learning about gardening. It's a beautiful demonstration garden here at Fair Oaks Park. It's the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center Harvest Day. You can uh, look it up on the internet and uh, hope to see you here. Thank you, Gail. You're welcome, Fred. You've heard me talk about the benefits of Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric container. Smart Pots are sold around the world and are proudly made 100% right here in the USA. Smart Pots is the oldest and still the best of all the fabric plant containers that you might find. Many of the imitators are selling cheaply made fabric pots that fall apart quickly. Not Smart Pots. There are satisfied Smart Pot owners who have been using the same Smart Pots for over a decade, actually approaching 20 years. When you choose Smart Pot fabric containers, you know you'll be having a superior growing experience with the best product on the market. And your plants will appreciate Smart Pots too. Because of the 1 million microscopic holes in Smart Pots, your soil will have better drainage and the roots will be healthier. They won't be going round and round on the outside of the soil ball like you see in so many plastic pots. The air pruning qualities of Smart Pots creates more branching of the roots, filling more of the usable soil in the Smart Pot. Smart Pots are available at independent garden centers and select Ace and True Value hardware stores nationwide. To find a store near you or to buy online, visit smartpots.com fred. And don't forget that slash Fred part. On that page are details about how, for a limited time, you can get 10% off your Smart Pot order by using the coupon code FRED. Use it at checkout from the Smart Pot store. Visit smartpots.com slash FRED for more information about the complete line of Smart Pots lightweight, colorful, award-winning fabric containers. And don't forget that special Farmer FRED 10% discount. Smart Pots, the original award-winning fabric planter. Go to smartpots.com slash Fred. If you haven't shopped at your favorite independently owned nursery lately, well, you're missing out. Now arriving are Dave Wilson Nursery's excellent lineup of farmer's market favorites. It's great tasting and healthy fruit and nut varieties. They're already potted up and ready to be planted. We're talking about almonds, blackberries, blueberries, boysenberries, figs, grapes, hops, kiwi, mulberries, olives, pomegranates, and much more. Oh, you want more? Well, here you go. Your favorite Dave Wilson bare root deciduous fruit trees are arriving. Peaches, plums, cherries, including my favorite, the plum apricot cross, the pluot. Wholesale grower Dave Wilson Nursery has probably the best lineup of great tasting fruit and nut trees of any grower in the United States. Find out more at their website, DaveWilson.com. And while you're there, check out all the videos they have on how to plant and grow all their delicious varieties of fruit and nut trees. Plus, at DaveWilson.com, you're going to find the nursery nearest you that carries Dave Wilson's plants. Your harvest to better health begins at DaveWilson.com. If you're thinking about cultivating your first garden, maybe a victory garden, I have a book for you that will help you out. It's called Sustainable Food Gardens by Robert Couric, a noted author of such tomes as Demystifying Roots, and one of my favorite books about drip irrigation as well. It's called Drip Irrigation for Every Landscape and All Climates. He's also famous for his other books, including Lazy Ass Gardening. 
And his new book, Sustainable Food Gardens, has great information for you about how you can avoid backbreaking tillage, how you can work with clay soils, improve your yields, maybe fix that ugly garden, dealing with drought, dealing with pests, dealing with low fertility, dealing with tedious watering, and dealing with weeds. It's all in Sustainable Food Gardens, a 436-page monumental book by Robert Couric. Robert, always a pleasure to talk with you. I like to refer to you as the uh, garden contrarian uh, just because of, uh, you know, some of the stands you've taken in the past, which uh, in time have always turned out to be right. Yeah. Hi, Fred. It's good to be here. <laughs> yeah, uh, I tend to be ahead of the curve a lot of times. Uh, my first book on drip irrigation came out in 1993, and I propose inline emitter tubing on parallel lines to water the whole root system. And now, after all those years, it's starting to happen. And the one thing I think we've learned from all of that is, especially with raised beds, it's important that you have those parallel lines even closer together just because of the uh, water footprint is very narrow. And so if you yeah. if you really want to uh, cover the entire root zone thoroughly with moisture, you need to have those uh, parallel drip lines maybe 8 to 10 inches apart instead of 18 inches. In a four-foot-wide box, I do recommend four parallel lines. On a three-foot-wide box, I've gotten away with two parallel lines, no problem. And, of course, it all depends on the consistency of your soil. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So let's get back to uh, Sustainable Food Gardens, the, the book. And one of the uh, premises of the book is sort of mimicking permaculture. Explain what permaculture is for those who may not know. Well, permaculture is proposed a uh, type of gardening that basically originally it was a combination of permanent and agriculture. And it was meant to be an alternative to farming, but it's since morphed into a word that's used in home gardening. And it's basically the same goal that I've had for 40 years is to integrate closed loop gardening where you have the least amount of input and the maximum output. And you do that in a natural way using ecological methods. And also easier methods, I'd like to add. It's sort of uh, reminiscent of your book, Lazy Ass Gardening. But just think about what we've done over the last 20 years. If I was starting a garden 20 years ago, I would be piling on compost on top of my raised beds, putting out the ramp, getting out my big five horsepower rear time rototiller and maneuvering it up the ramp onto the raised bed and digging as deep as possible and mixing in that compost and, and then uh, re reassembling all the drip lines and turns out that tilling is actually not that good for your soil, is it? It can be uh, really bad for your soil. Depends on how you approach it. But basically, if you look in my book, you'll see over and over again how important the top four inches of soil is, both biological activity and fungal activity. So the mycorrhizal association in the top four inches is like 75% uh, more activity in the next four inches. So even hoeing can be a problem if you do it too vigorously. So that when you incorporate uh, the biological activity of the top four inches down eight inches deep, uh, like you would with a shovel, 
the aerobic loving bacteria in the top four inches start to die off because it's an anaerobic uh, environment, relatively speaking. And any bacteria that likes the four to eight inch depth, if you bring it up to the surface, it starts to oxidize from too much air. So that when you're tilling too much or too deeply, you kill things off at both ends of the spectrum, bringing the, the good stuff from deep up to the top and taking the good stuff from the top and putting it down deep. Yeah, fast forward 20 years later, the rototiller is actually, I sold the rototiller <laughs> and bought a chipper shredder. Not a bad trade, I must say. Yeah, that's a good one. What I'm doing now to improve my garden every spring, I put down a couple of inches of worm castings along the top of the raised bed and then top that with another three inches of of compost, of a green waste compost, and then top that with my shredded up oak leaves from last fall. And, you know, fantastic. and there you go. That's it. Yeah, just like nature, layered on. Yeah, Exactly. And it's a lot easier and it really does improve the soil because you're increasing the microbial activity, as you mentioned. It also uh, helps preserve soil moisture. Very important, especially here in California these days. And, uh, you know, it keeps the weeds down, too. Yep. Good way to go. And uh, there's lots of history. There's a, uh, a famous woman, Ruth Stout who kind of originated no-till for America, but there was a woman in Australia at the same time that originated layered gardening in Australia. So two continents in the same uh, period, uh, two women were proposing no-till gardening. And I'm hearing more and more uh, from people who are employing what's called composting in place, the chop and drop and clip and flip method of taking your garden waste and just leaving it on the soil. Now, have you tried that? I have weeds like hairy bittercress that are my sworn enemies, and uh, I, I fear Bermuda grass, so I do it very limited. Drop and chop is a famous uh, proposal from the permaculture people, and I have a real hard time with it. Uh, in California, many of the permaculture gardening books were written by people gardening in New England and some in the Midwest less so uh, from the West Coast or California. And one of the things they like to to chop and drop is to grow comfrey and then cut the foliage off periodically a couple inches above the soil and just use it as a mulch in place. Well, I don't know if you ever tried that, but in California at least, the summer sun just desiccates it, just completely fries it. And so all the nitrogen goes out as a gas and, the, and you're left with a real kind of fragile, almost like exoskeleton, it is not friable, it's not moist, it doesn't compost in California at least. I think it might in, in uh, places where it rains in the summer. But that, to me, it's an idea about how you need to be very regional with your gardening and not get everything from uh, gardening books from New England if you live in California. Let me make a note of that. All gardening is local. All right. Got it. And it is. Uh, though it's one reason why I cover my compost with uh, three inches of, of shredded oak leaves is exactly for that reason, to keep that layer of compost from drying out under the hot summer sun. Yes. So one of the proposals in my book is to look at the myth of gardening, which can be very regional. And I wrote the book for the whole country, so I cover a lot of myths that may not apply to California 
and I cover a lot of myths that um, may not apply to New England. What you said about basically mulching your compost is very important in California. Yeah, we have heat, <laughs> and we and we, yeah. and we would like some more rain. Uh, that's an issue yep. too, and that's a, another benefit of of layering your your garden bed with all those uh, different layers. Is it does a great job of not only preserving soil moisture but improving the soil to allow more moisture to remain. Yep, the mulching is another addition to that. And in my book, I talk about a woman did research for her thesis on mulching. And she found that anything beyond three inches is probably a waste of material if you're buying it, certainly. But if you're going to the trouble to make it, going four inches deep doesn't get you proportionally more benefit than three inches. So that there's a diminishing returns once you get past three inches. Actually, we came here to talk about some golden rules for edible landscaping that you talk about in your book, Sustainable Food Garden. So let's dive into that. And your first rule is certainly one I agree with. And if you've just purchased a home or moved to a, a new garden area, one thing you need to do is live with it for a while and then plan it out on paper. One of the golden rules is actually it's not in my book. I should have put it in there. And that is live with your landscape for up to a year before you do a whole lot of planting because you need to evaluate where the wind comes from, where the sunlight comes from, how the sun is in the winter compared to the summer. Uh, watch your plants grow. And like in our garden, you can tell where to, to plant the vegetables. It's where the weeds, the grasses got the tallest. Some areas of my uh, yard, the grasses that were there got a foot high. In other areas of the garden, they got three, four feet high. So that's where the soil is better, and that's where I would put my vegetables. At the same time, you can plant cover crops. In other words, take large areas of your garden and plant things like nitrogen-fixing plants and plants that improve the soil structure. Independent of what the garden might do, you can get a jump on soil health, but not find your beds permanently in the first year or so. Yeah, exactly. And then plan it out on paper. And another thing to watch in that first year of monitoring your yard is where does the water go when it rains, especially after a heavy downpour? And if you've yeah. got some yeah. really, really wet areas that don't seem to dry out for a few days after a rainstorm, you might want to put a stake in that area and mark it to let you know that that is a slow draining area and you may want to make alternate plans for that area. Yes. Yeah. Now, you could also use plants to tell you, but that's in my first book, uh, Designing and Maintaining Your Edible Landscape Naturally. I have a two, three-page list of those plants and what they indicate. So, like, uh, dock is uh, very tolerant of flooding in the winter. You can see where flooding happens sometimes because there's a little field of dock growing in the landscape. Another thing that is a mistake that people make is their eyes are bigger than their tummy and they plant too big a garden the first time around. I remember yep. when we bought our acreage in southern Sacramento County, there, there were no fences. There, you know, it was it was acreage. So we had to mark off an area that would be the immediate garden. And so I figured, well, 100 feet by 100 feet, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot, that was a that lot of a work. Lot. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> that's a quarter acre. Yeah, start ever, so, start ever so small, you can always expand. Right. But it gets your quality going in a small area. 
Uh, and sometimes uh, that area is uh, pots of herbs on the front porch. Yeah, they, and you could do that while you're uh, monitoring the situation. You can have uh, containerized plants scattered about and uh, and grow yourself food for your first year at that new home. Yep, and that takes us to the third golden rule. Plant your annual vegetables no further from the kitchen than you can throw the kitchen sink. That hurts my shoulder to think about. Yeah, <laughs> well, when I first did the book, in 86, I thought I was visualizing, you know, the, the metal sinks of porcelain lining. But now we got these aluminum sinks. You can probably throw them too far. So you got to think of keeping it even closer. Yeah, basically keep it within sight of the kitchen window or the dining room window. Yes. And that's important. And it, because that is going to be a visual reminder of what's out there. And the healthiest food you can eat is the food you grow yourself. Yeah, back in... Uh, the 70s, there was a big craze for growing vegetables. I had a landscape business, and I had clients that put their vegetable garden behind the dog pen so that it was, quote, not visible because it was, quote, ugly. And for one client, I put it so she could see it directly from the uh, kitchen, from the sink where she did her prep, and that was the only garden that got harvested. Hmm. Uh, all the others behind the dog pen, I ate the garden for lunch. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can see that happening. One of your other uh, golden rules for edible landscaping is work with nature. Let nature work with you. We were talking to a, a famous master rosarian just a few days ago, and he noticed that he was uh, about to leave for a trip back east, and he noticed all these aphids on his uh, rosebuds. And he looked at them, and he looked around, and he saw a lady beetle and a soldier beetle, and he says, I'll just leave them. I'll come back. They'll be gone. And sure enough, he came back two weeks later. There wasn't an aphid to be found. Yeah, like with me, most years, my fava beans get black aphids early in the season. And uh, I just let them go. And then all of a sudden, the ladybugs show up. And then it gets a little bit warmer and the beneficial wasps show up. And most years, it uh, takes care of the situation. One of the keys for attracting beneficial insects, of course, is to put in those plants that attract the beneficials. And they're not necessarily plants that get infested with bad bugs. They're plants that uh, the beneficials need as housing and also as a, another source of food. Yeah, habitat. One of the, the, the big myths uh, for organic gardeners and permaculture people they think that those beneficial insect plants have to be planted right amongst the vegetables or right below the fruit tree. And I find that that's not necessary. So in my book, I have quite a bit of scientific data showing that some of the beneficial insects can travel 50 feet, 100 feet, 200 feet, and still be effective. So that means you're Beneficial insect plants can be at the border of your garden and still have a beneficial in, uh, effect on your pest. Uh, they don't need to be totally mixed in, jumbled away. So, like, I tend to try to put my beneficial insect plants in the uh, cut flower garden. So, a client would want a cut, cut flower garden, and they don't even know I put plants in there that uh, help bring in the beneficial insects. They're just happy to have the cut flowers. 
another trick to attract the beneficials. Uh, the beneficial insects, when they're flying around, they're, they're sort of like drivers on the 101 or I-5 here in California, and you see these big billboards advertising something. If you plant your right. if you plant your uh, crops, your flowers that attract the beneficials in mass, say in a three by three foot square, they can see that from a long ways away, and they'll aim right for it. Yeah, you got it. Now the uh, the list of beneficial uh, attractants is pretty long, and sometimes it includes uh, cultivated plants that are used for food. So like with um, uh, coriander, you can eat the uh, cilantro in the beginning of the season. And if you let some plants go, you get coriander. The flowers are very good at attracting beneficial insects. And if you let them go further, you get coriander seed. Exactly. And that's true with both uh, cool season crops and warm season crops. Uh, think of all your cool season crops like broccoli, cauliflower, bok choy, and they tend to bolt. They tend to flower this time of year. And if you still have the room, let them flower because they will attract the beneficials. Yes. You don't have to kill everything off or eat everything. <laughs> you know, we should point out that at your website, robertcurric.com, you can find a connection to that list of plants that attract beneficial insects. Yes, I have uh, 141 plants that are known to attract beneficial insects based on science. And I list the citation in the paperwork you get along with the spreadsheet. And in the spreadsheet, I show the, the bloom period because it's very easy to find beneficial insect plants that bloom in June, July. Trick is the getting a beneficial insect plant that blooms in March or April or September, October, or in California, even into November. So when you look down the column on October, you'll see where you, a bar crosses the spreadsheet. That's a plant that bloomed in October. So you can use the call the insectary chart to uh, pick out the best plants and to pick them out based on when they bloom. And what you have is a, a, a sample of that at your website. Uh, it looks like I would want to plant sweet alyssum because it can uh, bloom 12 months a year here in California. Yeah, and uh, it's one of the, the most uh, studied plants for beneficial insects. I think there's seven or eight citations just for alyssum alone. Correct. And now there are more and more farmers in California that are wringing their fields with alyssum to bring in the beneficials to help cut their pesticide costs. Yeah, they're either using uh, strips within the field or borders around the edge of the field. And that all depends upon how far apart you put them so that they migrate effectively into the crop area. And again, you can find all this at uh, Robert's website, robertcurric.com, K-O-U-R-I-K, robertcurric.com, and a list of all his uh, books and publications, including that insectary plant list. There was one more of your golden rules for uh, sustainable food production that we should bring up, and it goes back to planning your garden. And you point out that time and money spent early means time and money saved later and boy, oh boy, it's like lessons learned the hard way. When we moved to our new place a few years ago, 
I wanted all walkways to be four feet wide so I could get the wheelbarrow in. I wanted an irrigation system installed where I could control the water in each of the raised beds and so on and so forth just to make gardening easier. Yeah, a good example for many parts of the country is people have hose beds in the garden, but they put one hose bed near the, the planted area and that's it. And then they have to drag their 100-foot hose all over creation and knock down plants and start to cuss because it's so hard to drag the hose around. So spending the extra money to have quite a few hose bibs means you have a shorter hose and easier time using it. I concur wholeheartedly. When we moved to this house, there was exactly one hose bib in the backyard. Now there are 10. Good. And so you can maintain things much much more easily. Yeah, correct. Yes. And and if you decide to expand uh, your garden area, but you've already got your permanent irrigation system in, you can use one of those hose bibs to set up a battery-operated timer to uh, water the new area. Yeah. And uh, sometimes it's more cost-effective to have individual battery-controlled timers out in the garden than one large system in the garage because the cost of the large system, but also get very difficult, uh, can be difficult to run all the wires to all the different valves out in the garden. So in my front yard, I have battery operated timer because I don't want to try to figure out how to crawl in the, the small crawl space under the house to get the wires to the controller in the garage. But there is an easy way of getting the wires out to the backyard, so I use the controller for that. Yeah, and most of the the battery-operated irrigation timers that hook up to a faucet now are designed for use with drip irrigation systems, which mean that they can run for longer periods of time and there's more customization as far as uh, how often they come on. Yeah, and one area in my garden... Uh, where we're trying to keep a pine tree alive during the drought, we have a, a huge spiral of drip tubing uh, over the root system, but it's so far away from the house that instead of putting a solid PVC pipe, I do drag a hose to the beginning of that system and have a type of timer that I really like where you twist the knob to uh, 50 minutes or 100 minutes or whatever number of minutes, up to 120 minutes, and then it ticks back and turns off the water based on the time, not on the flow, but you have to experiment a little bit of how long you need to do it to get the amount of water you want. But it's a, it doesn't even need batteries. Right. I have one of those installed, too. It's right outside my garage side door, and I see it as I walk out, so it reminds me, oh, yeah, let's turn this on today. And like you say, yep. you can set it for whatever time you want, and it doesn't need batteries, and uh, it does a good job of uh, turning off, too. <laughs> yeah, and I find that it's hard to do it with a couple minutes or less, so that's where you need a timer that allows you to turn the system on and off for a minute or two, like my container plants are all on five minutes or less. And during the winter or early spring, rather, it's only one or two minutes. And so you need a, a good timer for that, not this 
twist on type thing. Right. Exactly. There's a lot of material we don't have time to go into. I would recommend that you uh, get Robert Couric's book, Sustainable Food Gardens, and visit his website, robertcouric.com, where you can find all his publications and uh, links to uh, purchasing them. And it, it's it's a wealth of knowledge. I mean, we could uh, easily get into demystifying roots and more on drip irrigation, for which he has, shall we say, some contrarian thoughts. Maybe we'll we'll do that sometime in the future. And uh, we could also talk about uh, multi-purpose plants. If you plant something that does more than one thing in your garden, you get better use of space. Exactly. I mean, a plant that you can eat and a plant that attracts beneficial insects, for example. Yeah, one of my favorite examples is fava beans. People grow it because it's a legume and fixes nitrogen to improve the soil. But you can eat the flowers in the spring. You can eat the young foliage. You can eat the green seeds as a pot herb, so to speak. And then you can let it dry out and have dry shell beans for the winter. So you get, what is that, five things out of one plant. And so you get very good use of space. There you go. There's a lot of information you can find at robertcurric.com. His latest publication available now is called Sustainable Food Gardens. Robert Couric, always a pleasure. Thanks for the great information. Thanks, Fred. I really enjoyed it. You might recall that back in Garden Basics episode 188 from late April, Organic advocate Steve Zion was singing the praises of compost tea. Well, let's set aside his advocacy stance for a minute, and let's take a look at any of the benefits or drawbacks of using compost tea from a research perspective. And that's going to be in today's Beyond the Basics newsletter. We talk with a Virginia Cooperative Extension Master Gardener. He's delved into a lot of the literature that's out there concerning compost tea studies. And he found mixed results. But are those mixed results because of, shall we say, garbage in, garbage out? It's a sober, thorough look at the pros and cons of using compost tea in your garden. Plus, we'll have more information about his mega study, as well as the links to the research so you can draw your own conclusions. It's in the newsletter that goes beyond the basics, the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred Beyond the Basics newsletter. Find it via the link in today's show notes or via our new improved website, gardenbasics.net. There you can find a link to the newsletter in one of the tabs on the top of the page. Or subscribe to the Garden Basics Beyond the Basics newsletter at gardenbasics.substack.com. Garden Basics with Farmer Fred comes out every Tuesday and Friday, and it's brought to you by Smart Pots and Dave Wilson Nursery. Garden Basics, it's available wherever podcasts are handed out. For more information about the podcast, visit our website, gardenbasics.net. And that's where you can find out about the free Garden Basics newsletter, Beyond the Basics. And thank you so much for listening.